This morning's sermon passage is taken from uh, the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, specifically chapter 3, verse 20 to chapter 4, verse 1. It's just three brief verses. We finish out the last two verses of chapter 3, and uh, we'll take a look at the first verse of chapter 4. Once you found that passage, our sermon passage, if you would then turn uh, just to the the book, the letter prior to the book of Philippians, Ephesians chapter 2. This is our scripture reading, Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. So we'll see that there's a a focus and emphasis here on uh, where it is uh, that our citizenship uh, rests, where it resides uh, in in a primary sense. And so Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 will help us to better understand Philippians uh, 3, 20 to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. So give your ear unto it. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And now turning, if you will, to Philippians 3, beginning at verse 20 through verse 1 of chapter 4. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This ends the reading of God's most holy, perfect, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Let us now come together in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for this reminder that you have given us Through your word this morning, we thank you that you speak to us as your word is read. And that you've reminded us where our true citizenship is, where our ultimate citizenship is, where our permanent and eternal citizenship is. You've reminded us, dear Lord, that our citizenship here on earth and in this land is temporary. It's not eternal. It's not permanent. It will go away. 
but that for those who belong to Christ Jesus, those who have him as their Lord and their Savior, heaven is our kingdom. Your kingdom is our land. And so we pray, dear Lord, that now by the preaching of your word, you would remind us again and again of this. You would remind us of our ultimate destiny, of our ultimate and eternal place of residence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we, we heard this when we read those 11 or so verses in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We, we read how Paul was describing to these Gentiles who they were a people who were once far off, and now they have been moved into his kingdom. They were once not a people. They're now his people, the Lord's people. They've been given a new citizenship. That was what Paul was saying there in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And Paul does this regularly because we are in need, human beings are in need, Christians are in need of being reminded where it is that our citizenship is retained. Human beings, we are earthy and earthly. We are of the earth, literally. We have been created out of earth itself. But we are also of the earth because we have difficulty transcending uh, the earth. We long to transcend the earth. We love to get above it and see things from a bird's eye point of view, to see things objectively. But when it comes down to it, we are at least for the most part subjected to the forces of gravity. This summer while we were on our vacation, I had the opportunity to read a biography of the Wright brothers. I highly recommend it. David McCullough, a great historian and a great book. And one of the things that the Wright brothers were fascinated by, they, they, they longed uh, to, to slip the earthly bonds. They wanted to get above the earth. They looked at the birds. They saw what they did. And they, and they in a sense, were envious of it. They wanted to join them up there. You see, we have a subject, subjectivity problem. The Wright brothers, they both literally wanted to get up in the air, but they also wanted to, in a, in a figurative sense, in a metaphorical sense, have this God's eye type view. Human beings have a subjectivity problem. We long to break barriers and soar overhead, but we are most of the time unable or unwilling to see the bird's eye view, to see the big picture. And this was the case in the Philippian church. Not that they were longing to fly like the birds and couldn't. Now, perhaps some of them were. It was that they weren't seeing the big picture. Some of their members had become so caught up in internal strife and bickering that Paul, in large part, wrote this letter to them to help them step back and get a better take on things. The risk was real that the church in Philippi could be ripped apart because of petty differences that had blown up into animosity. Now, Paul has entreated them several times already to look at the bigger picture, to, to take a step back from the fray. He reminded them in chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The, that though they weren't perfect now, though they still struggle with sin, though they are subjected to the harsh realities of living in a fallen world, when Jesus Christ comes, he will finish the work that he started and they will be perfected. He told them in chapter 1, verse 27, that their manner of life should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Literally, they are to be citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And so there is the, the first mention of this, this idea that, that they should be citizens of, of not the earthly kingdom, but, but of a kingdom that has to do with the gospel of Christ. 
And what is implied in that verse about their citizenship becomes clear later on. But it's a reminder that their citizenship calls them to a different sort of behavior than that of people who are citizens elsewhere, citizens of the earth. He commanded them in chapter 2, verse 5, to have the same mind that Jesus Christ had. And then he painted for them a portrait of Christ's humbling of himself. Have this same mind, he says. He told them in chapter 3, verse 17, to join together in imitating him in the way that, as he puts it in verse 14, in the way that he presses on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ. And we saw when we examined verse 14 several weeks ago that the upward call can also be translated heavenward. And then in verse 19 of chapter 3, Paul critiqued those who walk it as enemies of the cross of Christ, whose minds are, are set where? They're set on, on earthly things. Paul knows that it is dangerous for the church to have an earthward outlook, an earthly focus. And the dispute that we're going to get to, Lord willing, next week in chapter 4 of the book of Philippians, the dispute between Euodia and Syntyche, it is evidence that they see themselves as earthbound rather than, than heavenbound. They, they've lost their heavenly focus. They're caught up in the fray, the, the dust that they have stirred up because of this ruckus between two members of the church. It's, it's causing them to, to lose their ability to, to look upward. The pagans may set their minds on earthly things, but, Paul tells the Philippians, matter-of-factly in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a, sa a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a contrast here, a harsh contrast between the pagans, those who are earthly minded, who set their minds on, on lowly things, and those who are heavenly minded, those who have their citizenship in heaven. Now we talked about this a few weeks ago, the quote that some people are so heavenly minded that they are of no earthly good. And it would be easy for us to take this verse, verse 20 that I just read to you, and use it as a mandate to disavow any kind of earthly citizenship as a way to validate disinterest in the goings-on around us in the context in which God has placed us. Well, no, I don't need to get involved in what's going on in this land. I don't need to get involved in politics. I don't want to vote. I, my citizenship is not here on earth. It's in heaven. And there have been groups of people who have done that throughout the centuries, who have disavowed any sort of uh, earthly or uh, uh, temporal citizenship to the nation into which God, by His providence, has placed them. And you could... You could wrench this verse out of context and use it as your proof text for that kind of thinking. But if you're leaning that way, you need to remember a couple of things about the author of this verse. Where is Paul as he writes this letter? He's under house arrest in Rome. Why is Paul there? Because he appealed to Caesar on the basis of his Roman citizenship. He had been brought to trial in Jerusalem. And you read this in the latter parts of, uh, of the book of Acts. And, and when it looks like things are not going well, he appeals to Caesar. He asserts his Roman uh, citizenship right to appeal uh, to the emperor for this issue. In fact, the first recorded mention of Paul's Roman citizenship is in Acts chapter 16, when he was in Philippi. 
The day after the Philippian jailer was converted, having asked Paul and Silas after the earthquake that shook the jail and opened all the prison doors, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The next day, the next morning, when it was daylight, you read in Acts chapter 16, when the Philippian magistrates were simply going to secretly let Paul and Silas go. Kind of... Uh, shuttle them out of the side where nobody could see what happened. Paul says in Acts chapter 16, verse 37, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. Now, there are a couple of reasons why Paul might have, uh, have asserted this. Or he might have just completely uh, blasted the magistrates for trying to secretly dismiss them. One of, the, one of them was, of course, that... that They'd been treated very poorly in a, in a very undignified manner. They were beaten, they were flogged, they were humiliated. And now that they've more or less been absolved of that kind of thing, the magistrate's just going to let them go quietly. There's going to be no, no public uh, show of, ooh, we, we messed up here. But, but more importantly than that, I think for Paul, is the concern for the damage that it has done to his ability to proclaim the gospel, the, the hindrance that it has proven to be. Here are men who were uh, publicly humiliated, shown to be some sort of criminal or other, rabble-rousers, uh, causing trouble, and yet there's been no, no acquittal uh, of them, no showing that they were innocent. And Luke reports that when, that when Paul and Silas assert their Roman citizenship, that the magistrates were afraid when they heard this. Now, despite the fact that Philippi was in Macedonia, it was a Roman colony. The people of the city were Roman citizens. And so the magistrates of the city would have fully understood the consequences of unlawfully punishing a Roman citizen who had the right to appeal to Caesar. What if Paul decided to appeal to Caesar there in Acts chapter 16? That doesn't happen until later on in the history in Acts. But Paul didn't simply claim Roman citizenship when it was convenient for him, when it would get him out of a tight spot. In Romans chapter 13, Paul writes, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul makes it clear in Romans 13 that Christians are to be good citizens of the jurisdiction to which they are subject. Christians ought not to resist authorities, Paul says, but instead they should pay taxes, give respect to their leaders, honor those in authority. Christians, if we take Romans chapter 13 seriously, ought to be the best of citizens. But that does not mean that Christians are bound to obey every law or policy blindly. We are to obey God rather than men any time human laws contradict God's laws. If, if our society, the, the country, the, the, the government of the nation in which we live, tells us that we must do something that God's word very clearly forbids, then we may not do it. Quite simply, we may not do it. And that... Obedience to God when human governments would have us violate His law is an application of the fact that for Christians, our citizenship is ultimately not here on earth. It's in heaven. Our heavenly citizenship supersedes our earthly citizenship. It's an application in the lives of Christians that our heavenly citizenship, citizenship trumps our earthly citizenship. Our submission and loyalty to earthly rulers has a limit. Our submission to God has no limit. Our, 
earthly citizenship will end at that point when the Lord takes us home or Christ Jesus returns. Our heavenly citizenship will never end. And as Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's where your ultimate, your primary, uh, the superior citizenship that you possess, that's where it belongs. That's where it resides. Our citizenship is in heaven. And Paul points out that it is from heaven that we await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now back in verse 19, Paul said of the pagans who were enemies of the cross of Christ, that their minds were set on earthly things. And then he also said that, that their God was their belly. The Christian's God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Sinclair Ferguson writes, the pagans worshipped downwards and inwards. They needed to feed their God in order to keep him alive. But contrast the Christian believer who looks upward, outward, and forward to his Lord and God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The place of their citizenship is real and true, and the one they worship is there. But one day he's coming. Part of looking heavenward is... Remembering the future, if that makes any sense. Remembering what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ is going to return. Paul is calling upon the Philippians to remember this. He's reminding us that part of our duty as Christians is to await the coming of the Lord. We don't know the day or the hour, and yet we're to wait for Him. We're to look forward to His coming. Now, this word that's translated await, it means literally to await eagerly. It's a three-part compound word. And this is the kind of waiting that has you looking out your front window when you've got a, when you've got a guest who's coming and you're, and you're ready for this person to arrive. You're excited to see the person you've been waiting for pull into your driveway. That's the kind of waiting that Paul is describing here. And given that Paul has told the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven, we might expect when Paul says, and from it we await, that he would say a king instead of a savior. That might have been something that you were anticipating there. But while the Greek Old, term, the Greek Old Testament I'm sorry, while in the Greek Old Testament, the term Savior is used exclusively of God except in two uh, places. Soter, the word behind uh, the word Savior, from which we get soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation. Soter is used frequently in the ancient world of Roman emperors. Caesar and Hadrian were entitled Soter of the world. And Augustus, Savior of humankind. The emperor at the time of Philippians, Nero, was later termed savior and benefactor of the world. It, it's unnerving to hear human beings have these, these names used of them. And we understand, just as the Philippian Christians and Paul would have understood, that the emperor's taking of this title, of this name, savior, it was blasphemous. But what Paul is saying here is that just as their real citizenship is in heaven, so is their real Savior and King, Jesus Christ. The Roman emperors, by taking this title for themselves, they were nothing more than imposters of the high King of heaven. 
Paul tells the Philippians that Jesus is unlike any other guest that they have waited for. When he arrives, Paul says in verse 21, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The day that Jesus Christ returns, the day of judgment, it will be a terrible day for many. But for Christians, it will be the day when our old sin-plagued bodies will be transformed into glorified bodies like His. Back in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, where Paul said that the Son of God took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In order for the Son of God to pay the penalty for your and my sins, He had to become human. He had to add to his fully divine nature a fully human nature. And in doing so, he gained the ability to die. But when Christ returns, the reverse will be true for us. Though we're now subject to death, just as Christ was when he lived on earth, when he comes back for us, our bodies will be conformed to his body. And then at that point, we will no longer be capable of physical death. Now, this is true whether or not you are alive at the return of Jesus Christ. If you go to be with the Lord before He comes to get you, before He comes to judge the world, then when He returns, your souls will be reunited with your bodies which have been placed in the grave. Those bodies that were uh, corrupted, which decayed, which returned to dust, they will be... They will be transformed, they will be made new, they will be glorified. And if by God's grace, some of us here are still alive when Jesus Christ returns, then at that moment our bodies will will become glorified bodies. They'll be like Christ's body, no longer subject to the curse of a sin-plagued world. He was made like us, and when he returns, we will be made like him. Paul says, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The power which we read about back in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, that power which at the day of Jesus will cause all men, whether they love Jesus Christ or hate him, to bow down before him. And to confess with their tongues that he is Lord, that he is Yahweh. That same power is the power that will transform our our lowly, uh, uh, earthbound, sin-plagued bodies into glorified bodies. We transform our physical bodies into ones that are fit for heaven. Now, our shorter catechism says that Christ executes the office of a king by subduing us to himself, by ruling and defending us, and by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. The final part of Christ subduing us to himself is by giving us glorified bodies that will no longer be subject to the effect of sin. And he does this by the same divine power that he uses to conquer all of his and our enemies. In chapter 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. 
When you see the word therefore, you know something important is coming. It, not as if all of God's word is, is not important, only certain parts of it are, but, but we know that there's about to be a kicker on the way. Paul never disappoints. The therefore here shows us that Paul is drawing a conclusion from what he has just written. Before he tells the Philippians what that conclusion is, he uses a number of terms to describe these brothers and sisters in Philippi. He calls them brothers. It's a common term that Paul uses for fellow Christians, whether they're male or female. He tells them that he loves them and he longs for them. The Philippian church truly does hold a special place in his heart because of the way that they cared for him when he first came to them many years before and in those subsequent years when they supported him in all of his missionary endeavors. He says that they are his joy and his crown. And one commentator writes, My joy attributes to the Philippians that while they are not a joy to the Judaizers and other enemies, they are a great source of, they're a source of great happiness and pleasure for Paul. He's not in anguish when he remembers the Philippian church. His, his stomach isn't in knots when he thinks about them. He, he, he longs for them. He, he loves them. They give him great joy. And by calling them his crown, Paul means that they are a great honor to him, a shining example of the Lord building his church as he, ad- as he advances against the gates of hell. And then Paul gets to the concluding statement. Therefore, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul gives them a word of command. Stand firm. They're living in a fallen world. They're living in a society that hates the God who saved them. They live under an emperor, Nero, who not only has persecuted Christians and blamed them for the troubles in the empire, but who also has taken to himself the name Savior, which they believe is reserved only for Christ Jesus. And in the midst of all of this and many other very difficult things, Paul tells them to stand firm. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't succumb to the enticements that the world is putting before you. Your citizenship is is not here. It's in heaven. The place of your earthly citizenship is going to pass away. It is going to burn. Your citizenship is in heaven where your Savior also is. And He is coming back for you. He will return. Wait for Him. Look for the day of his coming. Be ready for that day. And when he returns, he will put all of the Neros of this world in their proper place. Because your citizenship is in heaven, because you eagerly wait for your Savior to come, because he will transform your lowly bodies into glorified uh, bodies like his, because of these things, stand firm. Don't give in. Christ Jesus is the solid rock upon which you stand. Don't forget that. Don't try to stand on any other ground. Paul here, in these few verses, is giving us an eye-in-the-sky view of the big picture so that when we are tempted to focus only on the things of the earth, so that we're we're tempted to, to, to be distracted by what's going on around us, all of the, the flashing lights and shining metal that the world has to offer will remember what God is doing and what God is going to do. He is going to come back. And we read in other places in God's word that we, we have to be ready for that. 
we look forward to the coming of our guest, to the coming of our King, to the coming of our Savior. Just as Paul does himself, he wants us to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Jesus Christ. If you believe in Jesus Christ, then that's what he's called you to do. Don't get too settled in. Don't get too comfortable. Don't forget that your ultimate and eternal citizenship resides with Christ Jesus in heaven. And he is coming soon to bring you home. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to abide by it, to live by it. We pray, dear Lord, that you would help us to live as citizens of your heavenly kingdom. Help us to be good citizens here on earth, in the land in which you have placed us. We pray, Lord, that our obedience to your word, to your law, to your will, that it would show the rulers of this earth and everyone else that there is another and even greater kingdom. Please guide us in all these things as we seek to walk through this life. We pray this in Jesus' name.